Good morning. New York City's Times Square is cleared out and that Major League Baseball suspending its season. Music and concerts. This Venues shut down across the country. All schools to close, which has turned many parents into... And once you get the food home, clean it before you store it. So why Our normal way of life has been put on hold. No going to the movies, the gym or dining out. But continuing to practice social distancing. Hello, you've reached the voicemail of Emily Nemens, editor of the Paris Review. Please leave a message. Hey, Emily, it's Scott Newman over at On Air Fest. Just returning your call about releasing the Paris Review live show as a special episode. We love this. Let's do it. Hope you're doing well. All our best to you and the team. Call me back. Bye. Hey, Scott. Sorry I missed your call. Hope you all are safe and well during this difficult spring. Um, The Paris Review, we're hanging in there, working on the daily, working on the print magazine. The summer issue is actually at the printer right now, and we'll be hitting mailboxes in early June. And I'm just so grateful that our prints are still printing and that our postal carriers are still carrying the post. Anyway, for the intro to the episode, I wanted to just confirm all the details. Let me make sure I've got this right. Recorded on March 8th, 2020 at the White Hotel in Brooklyn with live performances of fiction and poetry with live scoring recorded in front of a live audience. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Sorry, I missed you. I was just leaning out my window for the 7 p.m. cheer we're all doing for healthcare workers. Man, this is a crazy time. Okay, so we're going to make this happen. And yeah, a live audience, I can't wait until those can happen again. Stay safe. Talk soon. Bye. on air. Hi, everybody. We're going to jump right back in with a live performance. So sit back, relax, and enjoy it. This is the Paris Review Podcast. I assume the microphone is here, and this is a test. One, two, three, one, two, three. Three, two, one, three, two, one. I'm a radio kid. I, I grew up before there was TV. Treble. That's the opposite of bass. <laughs> Out past the horizon. Why do you write? My heart broken like a green bottle in a parking lot. In the last analysis. I know how I would listen. Desires always go far beyond the object of desire. That's a memory. Rich memory. Paris Review. It's for real artists. One, two, three, one, two, three. Whether the knife falls on the melon or the melon on the knife, the melon suffers. Thank you. 
podcast live at On Air Fest 2020. Today's show features a poem written and performed by Vijay Shashadri. A poem written by Adrian Rich, recorded by Bill Callahan, and scored live by Emily Wells. A new short story by Rebecca Mackay, read by Quincy Tyler Bernstein. And we begin with archival tape of the Parish Review's 1992 interview with Toni Morrison. Interview with Toni Morrison for the Parish Review. (coughs) Your novels are known for their extraordinary beauty, the beauty of their language, and their inclusion of beauty as part of life. How do you handle beauty in fiction? How do you relate it to narrative? Um, This is something that has preoccupied me for a long time. I think of beauty as um, an absolute necessity. I don't think it's a privilege or an indulgence. It's not even a quest. I think it's almost like knowledge, which is to say, it's what we were born for. I don't think we can do without it any more than we can do without dreams or oxygen. I think that the identification of beauty, the recognition of it, uh, with or without authorities telling us what it is, I think it would exist in any case. Finding, uh, incorporating, and then representing beauty is what humans do. The startle and the wonder of being in this place. The Ailanthus is a tree common to Brooklyn and also somewhat less common to Brooklyn literature. Its other name is Tree of Heaven. Ailanthus, a poem by Vijay Shishandri. In their distorting internal mirrors, the battered and in pain become the dragons mauling them. Their spirits drain to their spleens, which manufacture a substance viscous green that catalyzes their hearts colorless acetylene, igniting their dragon breath. Then they breathe and burn. The ones who did them dirt are done to a turn. 
the ones who stop to watch are torched to black pathetic stems by holographic Greek fire and ICBMs. And what happens to those servants of the state whose fault it all is, is too painful to relate. Brothers and sisters to dragons, but only in their dreams the mountain spews, the fisher steams. Elsewhere, the tree of heaven grows in deserted parking lots, auto graveyards, abandoned garden plots. The wind in its leaves is dry, arrhythmic, and sad. Everybody, it whispers, has their reasons, a few of which are bad. A story for your daughters, a story for your sons. Fiction by Rebecca Mackay. The war had closed much of the city, cut off many of the smaller towns. Unable to trace his usual routes, the hat merchant headed into the mountains to try his luck. His father, before he died, had circled a small mountain village on his map had noted that the trading was good, but the trip took two difficult days. Indeed, the snaking road narrowed fast, and the bridge was down to splinters, so his horse had to wade to the knees. Near sunset of the first day, long after the road had turned to an overgrown path, the merchant passed a plain young woman milking a cow. She asked him into her farmhouse for bread and brandy, but never turned her back on him. She didn't turn her back to cut the bread, to call for her mother, to find a glass. He imagined she'd met her share of passing soldiers who wanted more than drink. Her widowed mother asked if he'd stay the night. In exchange for the food, the bed, the oats, he let her pick a hat from his bags. She chose one made of thick red felt and told him he shouldn't bother with the village. They have all they need, she said. You won't do well there. She looked him up and down as if he were something to eat. She said, your hats are lovely. In the morning... He rode four more desolate hours and arrived finally in the heart of the village, where women skittered in and out of shops and children played in the streets. He set up his wares on the green under a tree, and the children dared one another to come near. Then they'd giggle and scream and flee. Eventually they grew bolder, stayed close to poke his horse with sticks. One of you came here last summer, a girl said. 
But that one didn't have whiskers, a boy said, as if contradicting her. The merchant asked them to tell their mothers to come see his hats. Or your father's, he said, if they aren't out in the fields. He didn't mention the other fields, the battlefields. This village seemed so untouched. The children's cheeks were fat and red. No windows were boarded over. The children laughed and laughed. They poked more at the horse, then tired of it and returned to their games. He noticed before long that the older women who passed were glaring, that the younger women hurried by but glanced with equal parts suspicion and hunger. One woman, her hair like waves of night, watched from across the road and after a long minute came to him, ran her fingers along the brim of a soft brown hat. She said, We don't need hats this fine. We have no one to dress for. To make a short story shorter, he found himself in her arms, on her bed, his face in her neck, her legs around his. He asked, when they were done, if she had a husband, if he'd be home soon. The merchant had jumped out a few windows in his day. The woman said, you didn't notice. All the men are gone. The merchant was forming a question about the war, but the woman continued. Years ago, the village midwife taught one woman to poison her angry-fisted husband by dipping flypaper in his drink. As she said this, she ran her hand down his belly, his thigh. Then another woman, whose father refused to let her marry and claimed her as his own wife. Then an old woman whose son wanted to take her house and exile her to a hut. Then more women, whose men sold or bought them in marriage, whose men beat them or broke their babies or kicked the goats or stank up the house. Then more women. Then all the women. The few good men who remained, she said, were in such high demand, so lusted after, that they grew arrogant. They became terrible and selfish and lazy, and soon they too were poisoned. This was all a good while back. But the children, the merchant said, sired by men like you. I mean the young boys. Do you? We send them off. When their voices drop, it's time to go. They don't return. It's the only way they know. We send them to the army or the monasteries. And no one has told? Who would tell? Someone like me, he said. Although how would he ever go about it? There are only two types of men. Those who would tell and those who would return. She bit his ear, ran her tongue behind the lobe. And what if I'm neither, he said. Because the way the woman drank him in... The way she stroked his throat was dangerous, was mesmerizing, was horrid, was wonderful. Then I should keep you as a secret pet. In the gray of dawn, the merchant slipped from her room and untied his horse. 
He was an hour outside the village when he remembered he'd left all his hats there on the woman's table. Fifty, seventy, a hundred, however many he hadn't sold, and Lord knew he hadn't been selling many. He stopped at the same farmhouse, knowing it was the last place to rest before making his way back down the mountains. He asked the women for water, and when they offered him bread, he refused because he had nothing to repay them with. The village, he said. Do you know those people? Are they your people? The younger woman smiled and didn't answer, but the older one shook her head. My sister is their midwife, she said. I know them, but they're not my people. The merchant had many questions, but what he found himself asking was, they're happy? Like that? The older woman shrugged. The younger woman took his empty glass to the small sink, placed it soundlessly in the basin. The older woman said, for a very long time now, they've lived in peace. later, after that war, and just before the start of the next war, the one that would shred the country's last borders, a cartographer came through the city where the merchant now lived above his own shop. The man was from the university, and he rode in the first motor car the merchant had ever seen, a splendid thing that roared. The cartographer made it his business to show his maps to everyone in the city who ever traveled, for trade or adventure. And the merchant who was by then too old to leave the block, let alone the city, poured over the sheets with great interest. He traced, with one chapped finger, the faint line up what he knew was the steep side of the mountain. Off the line was a dot and the name of a village illegible. This village, he said to the cartographer, you went there? He had spent decades wishing to return, considering a return, fearing a return, sometimes longing for a place he'd spent such a short time, sometimes furious there was a place on the earth he didn't belong. In the years since the journey, he'd never felt himself entire. It was a brief stop, the cartographer said, quite a few years back. He didn't blush or blanch. Did you... The merchant began and then asked, was there anything unusual about the town? The cartographer looked blank. A brief stop, he repeated. And then, oh, yes, yes. One thing I remember, and I'm sure this was the place. There they were in the middle of nowhere, but they wore such hats. He smiled, remembering, on every head, the most beautiful hat. Thank you.
here <laughs> to Adrian Rich. <laughs> when I was a child, I was learning respect for history. And when they said the world could end now at any time, I was too old to believe it. I was 16, and I knew there was a past and therefore a future. That in the face of extreme destruction, ideas could be saved, pledges passed underground. At 52, I know ideas can be destroyed, yet I also keep in some way that earlier belief. And between these two, my uses of the past take fire. found a seed and kept it in a glass of water and half forgot my dim intent until I saw it start to reach for life with one blind fragile root and then I pressed it into earth and saw its tendrils seek the air so slowly that I hardly knew of any change till it had grown a stalk a leaf and seemed to be no more a thing in need of me but living by some sapience I had not given, could not withdraw. So it grew on, and days went by, and seasons with their common gifts, till at the leafage of the year, I felt the sun cut off from me by something thick outside my room. Not yet a tree grown to the full, yet so endowed with need and will, it took the warmth and left me cold. First I climbed with hook and shears to prune the boughs that darkened me. But the tree was stubborner than I, and where I clipped it grew again, brutal in purpose as a weed. Nor did it give of fruit or flower, though seasons brought their common gifts and years went by. It only grew darker and denser to my view. Taking whatever I would yield, the homage of a troubled mind, requiring nothing, yet accepting my willingness to guard its life by the endurance of my own. It gives me nothing, yet I see, sometimes in dreams, my enemy, hanged by the hair upon that tree. The Tree, a poem by Adrian Rich. Long ago I found a seed and kept it in a glass of water and half forgot my dim intent until I saw it start to reach for life with one blind, fragile root. And then I pressed it into earth and saw its tendrils seek the air so slowly that I hardly knew of any change till it had grown a stalk, 
belief and seem to be no more a thing in need of me. But living by some sapience I had not given, could not withdraw, so it grew on and days went by, and seasons with their common gifts, till at the leafage of the year, I felt the sun cut off from me by something thick outside my room. Not yet a tree grown to the full, yet so endowed with need and will, it took the warmth and left me cold. And first I climbed with hook and shears to prune the boughs that darkened me. But the tree was stubborner than I, and where I clipped, it grew again, brutal in purpose as a weed. Nor did it give of fruit or flower, though seasons brought their common gifts and years went by. It only grew darker and denser to my view. Taking whatever I would yield, the homage of a troubled mind, requiring nothing, yet accepting my willingness to guard its life by the endurance of my own. It gives me nothing, yet I see, sometimes in dreams, my enemy, hanged by the hair upon that tree. have mentioned to me that you begin to write before dawn. Would you like to say something about what the pre-dawn hours allow? Writing before dawn began as a necessity. Um, I had small children when I first began to write, and I needed the time before they said, Mama. And that was always around five in the morning. And then I realized that I was clearer-headed, um, more confident, and more powerful, in a sense, in the morning. And that the habit of getting up early when the children were young was now a choice. For me, light is uh, a signal in this whole operation. It's not being in the light. It's being there before it arrives.
And that concludes this special bonus episode of the Paris Review podcast, recorded live at On Air Fest 2020 on March 8th at the White Hotel in Brooklyn. We'd like to thank Scott Newman and everyone at On Air Fest for hosting. The pieces that you heard in this episode are excerpts of Toni Morrison in conversation with Claudia Brodsky-Lacour. The recording was made in 1992, and parts of this conversation appeared in The Art of Fiction number 134, which appeared in issue 128, fall of 93. Special thanks to the Morgan Library Museum, home of the archive of the Paris Review, which includes the Morrison recordings. Ilanthus, a poem by Vijay Shashadri, which appeared in issue number 162, summer 2002. It was read by the author. A Story for Your Daughters, A Story for Your Sons by Rebecca Mackay, which appeared in issue number 232, spring 2020. It was read by Quincy Tyler Bernstein. And The Tree, a poem by Adrian Rich, which appeared in issue number 10, fall 1956, and was recorded by Bill Callahan with live scoring by Emily Wells. The excerpt of Adrian Rich speaking at the Women's Experimental Theater reading in 1982 appears courtesy of the Adrian Rich Literary Trust with thanks to Penn Sound, where the recording is hosted. Live scoring at On Air Fest was performed by Curtis Brewer on guitar, Mike Brown on bass, and Sam Ospavat on percussion. Our theme music was written and recorded by David Zieri. Thanks to my co-executive producers, John Delore and Brendan Francis Newnham, as well as the production team, Helena DeGroot, Lori Dore, and Craig Teicher. This podcast is a co-production of The Parish Review and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. Stitcher.